guys can have a seat. Would you have the guts to say something? If you were at lunch with your friend, with your coworker, and you're finishing up lunch, you've paid the check, everything's done, you're on the way to walk out the door, and you see that in their teeth there is a flake of parsley that's really big and really green and really hard to miss, and it's jammed just right up there. Who'd say something? Who's got the guts to say something? Okay, yeah, a lot of us. All right, yeah, it's a little embarrassing, okay, yeah. No joke, I was at lunch with someone about three weeks ago, and we were at Miramar, and they spilled some beans just like right there on the shirt, and I said nothing. I just let them just kind of figure it out for themselves. Um, so confrontation is not my jam. I am not good at this. I do not like having tough conversations with people. I like to be the guy who's patting you on the back and giving you the high five and the encouragement. That is more my jam. I do not like to sit down with people and call them out about things. And there's different people who are just naturally gifted in that way. I am what I like to call a peacemaker, but the reality is often a people pleaser. And I don't want to have the tough conversation. But let's keep going with this. What about... Would you say something if you noticed as your coworker, as your friend is about ready to step into an important presentation, they're going to go talk to the important client and they re you realize that their fly is down. Would you have the guts to say something? Okay, a lot of you, yeah. That's like the nightmare situation as a pastor. It's like you're about to get on, on stage and actually, I, I double checked because it's even worse if I'm talking about it. But there was one time I was serving in a church and the pastor, it was one of his first couple times speaking in that role. And he was like getting down to do the like on your knees at the cross thing. And it's, it was bad, it was bad. So it's really important to tell people. Now, would you have the guts to say something if you found out that your friend was cheating on their taxes? Getting paid under the table. We're going to claim the boat as a write-off. Now, I'm not a tax expert, so I probably couldn't look at their taxes. I'd be like, yeah, that sounds legal to me. But if you knew definitively that your friend was cheating on their taxes, who'd say something about it? Oh, okay, a couple, a couple, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, the conversation changes. So what about if you found out that your friend was struggling with an addiction? They're an alcoholic. They're struggling with cocaine or heroin or pornography. Are you going to have that conversation? Would you have the guts to say something? What if you found out your friend was having an affair and cheating on their spouse? Oh, who'd say something? That's hard. Not, not that we are relishing this conversation. Okay, let's, let's do one more scenario. Here you go. You ready? You ready? As if these weren't fun enough. Let's do one more. You're sitting at your house in the front porch, and your kids are playing basketball in the driveway. And all of a sudden, you see, from your vantage point, you see the ball bounce into the street. And of course, what do the kids do? When the ball bounces into the street, they're running after it. 
And you as the adult and the grown-up who knows to look both ways before you cross the street, you look down the road, you see a 16-year-old behind the wheel of an F-150 texting on their phone, going 15 miles over the speed limit, barreling down towards the child. Would you say something? Yeah! Would you do something? Yes! Like, you're going to get up. You're going to run after them. You're going to grab them by the shirt, pull them back into the lawn. And you're not going to feel bad when the kid is crying and sad because you just shook up their life. You're not going to feel bad about any skin abrasions that happen as you're just grabbing that kid and getting them out of the way because you have the guts in that situation to do the loving thing, even if it might not be the nice thing. And there's a difference between those two things. We live in a world and a culture that really values niceness, politeness, social cues. There are things that you are supposed to say to people, things you are not supposed to say to people. But silence is sometimes the unloving thing to do. Because sometimes we need that confrontation. We need to be called on our problems. And we need that confrontation to get us better. Now, welcome to Dallas Church. You guys ready for an encouraging message from God's word? (laughs) Let's go ahead and pray, and we are going to jump in with the minor prophets. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we love you so much, and we want to be people who follow your word and follow your direction. God, I pray that your spirit is speaking to all of us through your word today, and that you would be here and that we would be more like you as a result of this. So we trust you in everything, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you are following along with a Bible or a device, go ahead and open to the book of Hosea, chapter 1. So Hosea, chapter 1, and we are in a series here called Majoring in the Minors. And in this series, we are covering what is perhaps one of the most neglected portions of the English Bible. It is very rare that you're going to have a church or a Bible study or a series that goes all the way through these books because there's some tough stuff in it. There's some hard-to-understand portions of it. See, at Dallas Church, we are all about following Jesus. That's what it all comes down to. We are going to believe in Jesus. Spoiler alert, it's a church, guys. We're all about Jesus. So we're all about Jesus and living the life that he calls us to live. And Jesus read the minor prophets. They were important to him. In the New Testament, you're going to see a lot of stuff that gets pulled from the minor prophets and gets used to talk about Jesus and through the New Testament. And I'm sure there's going to be maybe some parts that you haven't heard about in the minor prophets. There are going to be some things that maybe confuse you or, or are kind of hard to understand, but it is still all God's word. Now, if you've been in church for a little while, it might be kind of hard to know when the Bible is doing things that I would call weird. There are some things in the Bible that are weird. There was one time when I was a kid's pastor in Idaho, and I I ran out of curriculum for my preschool Sunday school class, which is bad, because if you don't have a plan, they have a plan, and you will do their plan. So you need to have a plan. So in my preschool Sunday school class, I'm like going through the archives trying to pull something out. So I grabbed this curriculum from the 90s, and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Here we go. I love Daniel on the lion's den. Preschoolers like lions. Let's do this. 
So day one, we make little like paper mache lions and little paper plates and we're holding them up to our faces and going rawr and it's cute and all that. So then the next week after Daniel and the lion's den, you have to do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now that's a cool story if maybe you've heard it about how God rescues his people when they take a stand for him. But in that story, there's some guys that get thrown in a furnace. And I grew up watching VeggieTales, so I feel like this is normal. It's not normal. So here we are in our preschool class, and we've got the little flannel figures, and they go in the furnace, and then you pull them out, and they're fine, and it's okay, and hooray, everybody, God's good. But the next week, it's Easter. And there's only one craft that you can make on Easter. That is a paper mache cross with little, like, bits of tissue paper around it. So the day after Easter, I go into the preschool classroom, and I'm cleaning up, and I look on the wall at the crafts that we have made. And for the last three weeks, we have made ancient execution devices <laughs> in preschool. Man, so, like, there's stuff in the Bible, guys. Some of it, it is all equally God's word. We believe all scripture, this is from, uh, from Timothy, where he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So the whole Bible is equally God's word. But the whole Bible is not necessarily equally easy to understand or easy to apply. But we do believe that God is saying something on every page in this book. In the book of Psalms, it opens up with the picture of what this book is supposed to be like in our life. It says that the wise man, the one who follows God, they meditate on this book day and night. And it's like a tree whose roots go deep down and suck up the water in order to stay alive. And so that's the picture that this book is supposed to be like in our life. So I have had the habit for years of every morning I start my day in this book. Now, I've kind of switched to using my phone with some of the uh, version programs and stuff like that, but I am in God's word every single day. And there are some days where I'm reading the Bible and I get passages like from our series we just did on uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where it's love is patient, love is kind, love is, does not envy, does not boast, and that just kind of feels all warm and fuzzy and encourages me to be a better person. And then there's other passages, like let me just read an encouraging verse from the prophets for you. You ready? We're just going to have an encouraging verse here. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah 1-2. I'm not putting that on a greeting card. But it's still God's word. And so the prophets, they were a group of people that God sent to his nation of Israel to have the tough conversation, to be in their face, to shake them awake as if they were grabbing the child out of the way of the F-150 barreling down the road. Because as humans, we have some self-destructive tendencies. It's just true. And so God is calling this nation back to him. Let me give you just a little bit of backstory. I'm going to let the Bible nerd out of the closet for a little bit so that he can kind of just have some fun with this because this is great. So you've got the nation of Israel and in um, in history, they broke into two kingdoms. You've got a northern kingdom, that's called Israel. Turn to your neighbor, say Israel. Israel, good job. First service wouldn't say it. So I'm so glad that you did. Israel, then you've got the southern kingdom, that's Judah. Turn to your neighbor, say Judah. Judah, okay. So 
in Israel, you've got ten tribes that go north, and the temple is in Jerusalem. And notice the temple is not in that kingdom of Israel. And the center of the worship of God's people is still down south, but they all moved up north. In the Minor Prophets, you'll also see Israel called Ephraim. So if they say Ephraim, that's what that means. It's just this northern group. Now, when they start out as their own people, this northern kingdom gets off on the wrong foot because they put two golden calves as their center of worship at the north and the south of this kingdom. And if you know the history of Israel, if you remember some things about this guy named Moses and the history of Israel, anytime Israel is busting out golden calves, it's bad news. <laughs> and so they've got this site. I actually have a picture of where I, uh, in 2018 I visited this site. And so archaeologically, it is just a fact. We have found the site where they worshipped at this site of golden calves. And so the northern kingdom gets off onto this bad start, and they have terrible kings. Their most famous king is named Ahab, and he is like the worst of the worst. And every king is compared to him. If he's a bad king, he's like Ahab. He's a bad king. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, they get the tribes of Judah and Levi. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you real quick, but you might remember that the tribe of Levi were the priests, and the tribe of Judah was the tribe of David. And so the, you'd think we've got two good guys teaming up, so that nation is going to be the good guys. Nope. Nope. They're going to have the occasional good king, but over and over again, they're going to choose their way over God's way. And so the prophets are sent in this context to go to the nation of Israel and to wake them up, to shake them up, so that they will go back to their call to be on the path that God set for them. So, when it comes to prophets, prophets are more about forthtelling than they are about foretelling. When we hear about prophets, we're thinking like fortune cookies, right? Like, this is the lottery numbers that you should go bet on. This is what's going to happen. My brother and I had Chinese food uh, a couple weeks ago, and his fortune, no joke, no joke. It said, next century, you might live on the moon. And he was like, did this fortune cookie just kick me off the planet? <laughs> so the prophets are not fortune tellers. They are calling out the nation and looking around and saying, guys, if we keep doing this, there's going to be judgment. If we keep doing this, it's going to go bad. There is an F-150 barreling down the road towards us, and we have to get out of the road and get back on God's path. So there are several ways that they do this. In the Minor Prophets, you are going to encounter the strongest language in the Bible. The most graphic word pictures that ever show up in the Bible are in the Prophets. And your English translation makes them nicer so I can read them in church. So, like, there's one, for example, there is one passage where he's talking about the oppression of the poor. And that when you use your situation of power for your own gain instead of serving the other person, hey, that sounds familiar to something that Jesus said about being, uh, coming to serve but not to be served. And so the prophets, they're going to say, when you are an employer, when you are a teacher, when you are a pastor, when you are in a position of authority over someone and you are after your own gain instead of their gain, you might as well be a cannibal. 
you might as well just eat them because you're using them for your own gain. Welcome to the prophets, everybody. Here we go. So they come to the nation of Israel and they have strong language to call them to repent and to turn back to what God has called them to. And then they also have to do these things that theologians call sign acts. Sign acts, where they have to act out or do something to show the judgment that's coming. Because the words weren't enough, you gotta have actions to back it up. So for example, the prophet Isaiah was called to go naked for one year as his ministry. You're welcome that no one at Dallas Church is called to this ministry. The prophet Ezekiel is told by God to cook his food over his own feces. That's gross. I don't care what culture you're in. And Ezekiel looks at that and says, God, can we do a cow feces instead? And he does back it down. Ezekiel is also told to set up this like model action figure set of the siege of Jerusalem and to act it out and play with these action figures to show everybody what is going to happen. Now that's the ministry I want to get on is action figure ministry. Ben said, no, it's not in the budget. So uh, Ezekiel gets called to do these things and they're for the purpose of waking the people up and calling them back to the ideal that God called them to. So there's three major sins that Israel is guilty of at this point. Number one is idolatry. You've already, we've already talked about the calves. They also worshipped the gods of Baal, of Molech, and Asherah. The god of Baal was all about wealth and prosperity. It was about getting their fields to produce more and more and more. It's a good thing we don't struggle with that in America, right? Worshipping wealth and prosperity and comfort and putting that in the place of God. Another god was Molech, and that was the god who was all against family. They would sacrifice their infants to this god, Molech. And that's a terrible thing, and what is showing by this bad worship and the way that when you worship something other than God, it destroys your life. And when we put something other than God in that place, it leaves us wrecked. The other god was Asherah, which was the goddess of sex. And it's a good thing that's not a struggle for our culture at all, right? So Israel has this idolatry problem, and even though we're not going to go home and worship cows today, we still struggle with pulling God off the throne and putting something else up there. The next thing that they struggled with was oppressing the poor. Sometimes you're going to read the word social injustice. I, I like the phrase oppressing the poor because I feel like it, is, uh, it doesn't carry some of the baggage that our culture might carry with it. But basically, when you're in a position of power and you're using it to gain more power and you're not looking out for the needs of the weak and the defenseless, that is against the way of Jesus. That is against the way of God. And that is what God is going to call out in the prophets so often. And the last one is insincere worship. Faking it in church. They would go and worship at the temple, but their hearts weren't in it. It was something that only lasted for the time that they were in the temple, and then their hearts were on to other things. And it's interesting how these things are connected, and the prophets are going to say, if you start with idolatry, you're going to end up 
on this road. You're going to end up guilty of all the other things. So those are the three major sins of, of Israel. Are you guys enjoying this encouraging message from God's word today? It's wonderful. Here we go. So the major themes in the prophets. God is going to talk about his heartbreak at Israel and Judah's idolatry. If we're looking at just across all the minor prophets, these are some of the big things that pop up throughout the story. And this is the stuff that we read, and it seems really harsh. This is the stuff that we don't always get. I've heard people look at the Old Testament and decide that because of what they see in the Old Testament and some of these hard passages, they say God is cruel. The God of the Old Testament, he's into genocide. The God of the Old Testament, he doesn't, he's not the loving God of the New Testament. And I got to tell you that you got to look farther. You got to look beyond. You got to look at the whole book because a lot of times the books of the minor prophets are going to have judgment, judgment, judgment. If you don't turn, bad stuff's going to happen. But at the end, there's this uptick of, but guys, there's hope. And the point of the prophets was not to make the Israelites feel bad about themselves. And I'm not up here to try to make you feel bad about yourself. But the call of the prophets is for us to know the heart of God and to know that what he wants for us is better than what we want for us and to submit to his way and to turn back to him. And so there's strong language because God is heartbroken that they're hurting each other and they're hurting themselves. And then we see God's anger at their oppression of the poor. We see God's judgment coming in the form of nations like Assyria and Babylon. The northern kingdom, spoiler alert, at the end of the story, they do get wiped out by Assyria. The southern kingdom, they get conquered by Babylon. And that's why we did that exile series, if you remember back to November. Because God didn't give up on them. And even though they refused to turn back to him, there was the word remnant. And that means a little bit of people, a small amount, that God keeps and saves and protects, and from that, eventually restores the nation of Israel and brings them back. So the next thing is hope for a restored remnant from Israel. And in the Minor Prophets, we're also going to find hope of the Messianic king. Over and over again, God's going to say, I'm not done with the line of David. And that is why in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, we're going to open the New Testament with Jesus' genealogy. Because it's showing that he's coming from David. And what we've been hoping for this whole time is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So hope for a messianic king. And then at the very end, hope for all the nations to worship God. There's pictures of even though there is strife in this world, that at the throne of God, all people are welcome. All people will worship God. Every tribe, every tongue. And this is something that comes forth in the New Testament as true when Paul and Peter in the book of Acts are going beyond the boundaries of Israel and they're trying to take this message of Jesus everywhere and eventually they start churches that then start churches that then start churches that then start churches until 2,000 years later, there's this little group in Dallas and we're studying the Bible because it's the way of Jesus. So those are the major themes of the prophets. So what it comes down to, if we got one big idea for the whole prophets, we're going to summarize the whole thing. You ready for this? Get ready to turn to your neighbor. You're going to have to say it. The big message of the prophets is that God loves his people. Turn to your neighbor. God loves his 
people. And that might be hard to see in the middle of it because it's not always nice. It's not always comfortable. If you're going to read through the Minor Prophets this week, you're probably not going to have that wonderful little fuzzy moment with your devotional and the reading Love, Joy, Peace, Patience, Kindness, Goodness. But at the end of the Minor Prophets, there is hope. Hope. So let's do a snapshot of just four of them real quick. Ben asked me to cover four of these. Um, they get called the Book of the Four in, in traditional Hebrew, uh, breaking it up. And I'm pretty sure he gave me like the longest and the most amount of them. So I don't know that that's entirely fair. And we're going to have a conversation about that later. But uh, here we go. Amos is the first one we'll look at. Amos does a one-year campaign against corruption. His ministry only lasts one year. He is a farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he gets called up to the northern kingdom of Israel to start pointing out what's wrong with them and to start calling out what's going on. So I want you to imagine, if you will, this isn't an exact parallel, but it's an interesting parallel, of a Texas farmer, Texas rancher, who goes up in the middle of Portland and starts pointing and calling out every single thing that he sees that he does not like. How popular is that guy going to be? Not in Portland. Not, no, he's not popular there. And so Amos is up there for this one year, and there comes a point where they come to him and they say, Amos, the king is really worried that you're going to start a rebellion, and the king is really worried that you're going to get him assassinated, and so he's probably going to come after you. Would you like to apologize for anything? And you guys know how prophets go. He looks at him and says, yeah, you're going to lose everything. Because he's that hard word to try and shake them up. But if you look at the book of Amos, we've got a one-sentence summary here. I've lifted a lot of this from thebibleproject.com. And if you really want to do some digging in your own personal life, this is a great place to start. Because we are not going to preach every single verse in the Minor Prophets here today. Because you guys all want to go have lunch after this. So, here we go. He's a shepherd who is called to preach. He's going to call out the evil doing in the nations around Israel. But he's also going to say, but Israel, if you got one finger pointing out there. What did grandma say? You got one finger pointing out there. You got three pointing back at you. And so he calls Israel on the carpet. He tells them that those in a position of power have a responsibility to look after those underneath them who are powerless. He talks about how there is no God like Yahweh and that when we put something else other than God on the throne of our heart, we will always come up short. And that is true then, it's true today, and the end is hope of all nations worshiping God together. There we go. We did, we did Amos. Give yourself a pat on the back. Here we go. Micah. Next one. Micah preached at about the same time as the prophet Isaiah. And the opening of his book, he's going to tell you how many kings he served under. And it is several. The kings are coming and going, but Micah is still there trucking, doing ministry, preaching in the name of God. So he's like that small town pastor that just settles in and is there for years and years and years and years and years. And so Micah calls out what's going on. And his most famous verse, maybe you've heard this one, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I could just mic drop right there. If we could just work on that this week, 
to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. <clears throat> the next one, he talks about how Israel is indicted. He talks about corrupt leaders. He talks about hope of restoration. Micah is also where we get the cannibalism passage. So just so you know. And then there's a future hope of the messianic kingdom that is going to be. In Micah 5.2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Think Christmas, everybody. Bethlehem, the ruler of Israel, who is from ancient of days. And so in the Minor Prophets, we're going to see this foreshadowing and this hope of the messianic kingdom of Jesus and a future hope in God. Okay, we're almost there. We're going to keep trucking. Zephaniah. Here we go. Turn to your neighbor, say Zephaniah, because that's just fun. Zephaniah. There are no kids that I know named Zephaniah, so I think maybe we should bring this trend back, and Zephaniah would just be a really cool hipster name. So I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, now, Zephaniah is preaching in the middle of a revival in Israel. There was a moment in Israel's history where they were remodeling the temple and they found the book of the law. I want you to imagine this. 200 years in the future, someone comes to remodel Dallas Church and they open up one of the walls and they find this book and they go to each other and say, I don't know what this is. It says Bible and it belongs to a guy named Ben Bauman. And like they lost the Bible for a generation. The nation of Israel did not have the word of God. And we look at that and we say that's crazy, but how often does this just sit on the nightstand next to us? So I'm just going to leave that there and keep going. So Zephaniah is preaching in the middle of this revival and saying even though there's some good stuff happening, we still need to turn to God wholeheartedly. And he talks about the judgment will come, but there is hope for the future. Now, I got one last prophet. And it is perhaps the loudest cry to turn back in the midst of the nation of Israel. He is the last guy to talk to that northern nation before they get destroyed by Assyria. And it is the Hail Mary to try and get their attention and pull them back in the lawn away from the truck that's coming down. And it's the book of Hosea. And Hosea gets the call on his life that I'm sure a lot of prophets, I don't know how they would have responded. Were they given this? I can guarantee you that there was nobody in Bible college where we were training to be pastors who got this call on their life in the middle of that classroom. But God calls Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to go marry this person, this woman, who in their culture and in their world would have been reviled and ostracized and put out, and everyone would have not given her the time of day. And Hosea is called to go marry her, to provide for her, to be a good husband to her, to care for her, and to live a life with her. And so what Hosea does is he, he follows God's call and he marries this woman and then he's going to have some kids and they have kids together and he's supposed to name his daughter No Mercy. That's a wonderful name. 
Hopefully it was like the middle name or something like that, but that's the name that she gets, and she's walking around the playground with the name No Mercy. And then he's supposed to give his son the name Not My People. He's supposed to give his son the name, That's Not My Kid. That's Not My Kid, get over here. We're leaving the playground, let's go. Like that's the name he's supposed to give his son. All to illustrate what's going on in the time of Israel at that time. And the fact that even though God cared about this nation, when they were just a bunch of, uh, they were slaves in Egypt, and everyone else wouldn't give them the time of day, but God cared about them and brought them out and made them a nation. And he's saying, even though you're going to resist what I'm saying, you're going to hold me at arm's length, I'm still going to care for you, I'm still your God, you're still my people. And what Hosea is called to do with that son named not my people is to care for him and raise him as a son. And so there's a little irony there as the name says one thing, but the actions say another. Now, as if this happily, happy family wasn't living happily ever after already, what ends up happening in the course of time is that Hosea's wife runs off, cheats with Hosea, or cheats on Hosea with all of these boyfriends. And so she goes off with these boyfriends and racks up a ton of debt as she goes from person to person. And God calls Hosea in the middle of her racking up all of this debt, and he goes to her and says, Start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who is in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife, love her the way I, God, have loved the Israelite people. And so Hosea has to go get her, take her from a bad situation, bring her home, care for her, love her, trust her. And it's not just that he just goes and gets her, but he has to pay every debt that she has accumulated over this time. And it costs him. Guys, I don't know that there's a clearer picture of Christ in the New Testament or in the Old Testament where God cared about us. And even though you and I over and over again, we have chosen our way over his way. In Romans, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us, he died for us. And so the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel is that while we were doing our thing, he came after us. And Jesus, the God-man, God and man simultaneously lived on this earth, lived a perfect life, died on a Roman cross, rose from the dead three days later, and it cost him something. And the word that Hosea has to do, the word for what Hosea has to do as he goes to get his wife is the word redeem. To pay back. And that is why that word becomes so central to the Christian life. To redeem. To be redeemed. You've heard the song, My Redeemer Lives. Because that's Christ paying for us. And so the hope, the hope is that despite current brokenness, despite the moment where it is rough and it is tough and it is messy. And guys, we look out at our world. Do we see some messiness going on out there? Yes but that there is a God who loves us and is going after us and always has gone after people in the midst of the mess. And that is why the message of the prophets 
is that God loves his people. The message of the prophets is that God loves his people. So when it comes to action steps from this, we have, we've talked a lot, we've covered a lot of ground in scripture. I think that those three sins that we've talked about, the idolatry, the oppression of the poor, and the insincere worship, I think those are good mirrors for us to put on our own soul and to kind of see what's going on there and to see maybe some areas where we need to shore up and to let the prophets convict us, to let the prophets show us where God needs to work on our heart. Another action step might be that if you haven't read through the minor prophets, it's part of the Bible, and a baby step that you could take is to read Hosea chapters 1 through 3. That's kind of a self-contained story, and it's a really good place to start. But ultimately, we need to know that there's a God who loves us and a God who is going after us in the same way that this Hosea prophet was going after his wife. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We want to trust in you. We want to turn to you. God, I pray that these books and your spirit would convict us and show us where we need to live more like you. God, that we would know your grace. We would know that you came after us and that we would believe in you and follow you all the days of our life. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.